You can see by the title of our sermon this morning that I'm going to be preaching about something I know everything about. That was sarcasm, if you didn't pick up on it. As the kids were coming back and sitting down, Lux looked at me and said, Good luck! She, she must have heard my wife and I this week talking about this. So before we, before we jump right into this idea of marriage and what a Christ-like marriage looks like, um, just a brief review because I, I think it is important for us to remember where we've come from because what, where we've come from instructs what God says about marriage, about what God says to husbands and what God says to wives. And so last week we talked about John the Baptist said, he must increase and we must decrease. And you better believe that applies in our marriages, right? If we want a Christ-like marriage, we have to say and believe and practice decreasing of ourselves and increasing of Christ in our lives. Paul says the wise person is not going to be filled with alcohol or sexual morality or idolatry because you can't be filled with the Spirit if you're already full of those things. And in order for us to submit to other people, we have to first to submit to Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate authority over our lives. At, at the core, any reverence, any respect, any love, any submission that we give to someone else is a result of how much we are doing those things with Jesus already first. We cannot submit, we cannot love, we cannot cherish another person if we aren't already doing those things with Jesus in our lives. And so our text today leads us into something that I think, if rightly understood, could change the course of human history. That sounds a little exaggerative and like sensationalized, I, I understand. To say that if we understand marriage and the family, that it could change the course of history. But I think if you'll stay with me, you'll see why I say that. Let's read our text together. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of one body, of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as, as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's, let's pray again together before we dig in here. God, as the giver and source of love itself, please help us understand it more fully today. What we have, what we've just read is, it's not a suggestion to be obeyed when we feel like it. Lord, this is instruction given to husbands and wives that we cannot obey on our own strength. We cannot do this 
if we just try to do it ourselves. I cannot love my spouse the way that Christ loves the church without your spirit within me. And we cannot submit to our spouses as we submit to you without your spirit first within us, Lord. So I, I pray today that you would make it crystal clear to us that the only way for our marriages to be healthy is if we are being constantly filled with your spirit. And so, Lord, again, we just echo John the Baptist's words and say that you must increase, but I must decrease. So, Lord, may we boldly stand on your word in our beliefs today and just as importantly, Lord, in our practice. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you know me at all, I hope that you know me to be a, a man of hope kind of a glass half full kind of a guy. I hope to be able to kind of observe situations, sort of be objective about what's happening, and then focus on the positive things as we move forward. Well, here's the situation. The foundation of the family is crumbling. The foundation of the family is is crumbling. People are confused about what love is, what commitment is they're confused about gender about sexual attraction about marriage in general about headship submission and what a godly family is just supposed to look like and the sad part is that i'm not just describing the world outside of these walls a lot of this is describing our churches both inside and outside the church there are some people who are even angry and hostile about what the historic view of biblical marriage is. Something, as Jason showed us, something is broken. Very broken. And it's not just a cultural war or something that's specific to us and our geographical location. Make no mistake, this is a spiritual battle. This is a spiritual battle because the enemy would love to poison our minds into believing that God's purpose and God's plan for marriage is outdated or misinformed or chauvinistic or sometimes people even say it's harmful. To stand up and to say that God's plan for marriage involves a husband leading and loving a wife and a wife submitting and respecting to her husband is hardly politically correct at this point. And so there are people who actually say that kind of Belief and practice in our families is actually detrimental to our society. So we need to be clear about what marriage is because we're being told that it's not what it used to be. And in a lot of ways, we know that that's true in our culture. Satan would love to confuse us and tear down the foundations of God's purpose and plan for marriage. So what we want to do this week especially is just to kind of get an overview of what God says to us in this passage and try our best to recover and then celebrate God's good design for marriage. Next week, we'll walk through the text a little bit more specifically. This week is more of an overview. But I realize as we start this today and then for next week, I'm not talking to a room full of married people. Some of you aren't married. Some of you have never been. Some of you have been or widowed or some of you aren't old enough to get married yet. So I realize that not all of us are married. Wherever you're at on that spectrum, I hope that you won't just tune me out. I hope that you'll stay engaged in this section because the relationship of marriage 
is the oldest relationship that there is, except for one. God's relationship with mankind is the only relationship older than the marriage relationship. And so this is important for us. Think about this. Before mothers and sons and before daddies and daughters, there was husband and wife and there was God. I offend my kids regularly. I offend them, not necessarily intentionally, but I offend them regularly. And here's, here's how I do this. I tell my kids that I love their mother more than them. I, Lux is giving me the evil eye right now when I say this. But I tell them this. I say, I love your mother more than you. I, I, I love my kids, don't get me wrong, but I love their mother for five years before I ever even had a child. I was a husband before I was ever a father. And so my love for them is different than it is for my wife. But when they're gone with families of their own, moved out, who's left? Me and my wife. I want to continue investing in my wife, not just in my kids. And that's easy for us to do because our kids are going a million directions. We've got to do this and we've got to drop them off here. and We've got to pick them up. We've got to plan for this. And it's easy just to focus all of our attention on our kids and neglect our spouses. It's easy to do. But I want my children to see me praising her and thanking her and showing affection for her and even serving her so that they can see what a good relationship between a husband and a wife can look like. Now, lest you think I am the model husband, I also want my kids to see when we disagree. So sometimes when we disagree, we ask them to go downstairs so we can finish the conversation. But sometimes I want them to see how we reconcile. I want them to see how we argue and then come together to find a solution, how to work forward and make sense of this. Because as married people know, you will argue in your marriage. It's going to happen. How We need to learn how to fight right because we're going to fight. Here's the first thing on your notes that I want you to think through. The health of our marriages today affects generations to come. We know this is true. We cannot deny this. We know this is true simply by looking at the effects of divorce on kids. We know that the health of our marriages affects generations to come. So whether marriage is on your mind today or whether it's not on your mind, marriage should matter because the institution, how the institution of marriage goes vitally affects our society as a whole. Our marriages affect and impact generation after generation, after generation. I mean, we see that in biblical history, and we just know that to be true even in our culture now. If you have been wounded deeply by a spouse, if your marriage is struggling right now, if you're not sure if you could even love your spouse again, I believe the Lord wants you to know something today. Compassion abounds to every person who has been wronged in a marriage relationship, and there is real and complete healing found in Jesus Christ. But I don't think that we're going to see that healing or feel the result of that healing until Jesus is allowed to have his way in our hearts. Just to be clear, I'm not talking about the heart of your spouse right now. I'm talking about your heart. I'm talking about my heart. I don't know of any husband or wife who was changed from their wrong behavior by their spouse's constant criticism and critiques. But I know many who have been changed by the truth of God's word. And so that's what we cling to. 
So a question just as we start on this journey of marriage, how is God shaping you, not your spouse, how is God shaping you as a husband or wife right now, regardless of your spouse's behavior? We can't use our current circumstances or what's happened in the past or any other excuse to keep us from obeying God's word today, right now. And so I believe it's God's desire that you and your marriage be healed. But it takes surrendering to what he says, not what you feel. I want to point something else out here too. The the poor examples of marriage that we see are not the result of an out-of-date institution. Our bad examples of marriage that we see are the result of our sin. How could it not be the result of our sin? Because we know sin wrecks relationships. It wrecks one anothering in our homes and in the church. It's been that way from the fall. Right away, when sin entered the picture, it began to wreck everything. And it's going to continue until Christ returns to make everything right. And we look forward to that day. I want my kids to understand that when they see me fail to lead our family well, it's not because God's purpose and plan of marriage is unrealistic or outdated. It's just because I'm failing to do it His way. The problem is not with God or the institution of marriage. The problem lies with me. Brothers and sisters, the problem lies with us, not with God's Word. And when we begin to take responsibility for our problems in our marriages and own our part, only then will we see healing and relief and restoration. Those things are possible when we surrender to Christ. And the truth of it is, the good news of the gospel is just that Christ died for everyone who could not do this perfectly, but turns to Him in faith. That's the good news of the gospel. Any person who genuinely repents and gives themselves over to the rule of Jesus finds forgiveness and purpose and hope and strength to press on. So you can be confident that there is hope for hurting marriages because Christ still loves His church. There's hope in your marriage because we know Jesus has not forsaken His bride. He's not given up on her. And so we know that He's not going to give up on the institution of marriage either. Now I realize that this can be a delicate subject. There's a lot of emotion and feelings wrapped up in marriage and what this looks like and what we're talking about. But as a pastor who wants to be faithful to preach the whole counsel of God, all I can do and really all I want to do is point you to Jesus Christ and the Word of God as the only answer to your problems in marriage. So we need to read what he says about marriage and let that settle the inward and outward debates of how marriage should work. Here's the second big thing. The Bible determines how we interact with our spouses. God's Word sets this bar. God's Word sets this standard. Not our culture, not what's happened in the past, not history, not psychology, not our circle of friends, and certainly not our feelings. Those things cannot determine how we interact with our spouses. Our therapists and our mothers and our best friends do not tell you how to deal with your spouse. God's Word does. And when we turn to those other things, we go down a path that God never intended for us to go down, and our marriages end up breaking. There's a word that doesn't appear 
in this text, but I think is really at the heart and undergirds all of it. So I want to talk about it for just a minute. It's the word covenant. And kids, this is the word that Pastor Jason was leading you to hear. Marriage is rooted in covenant keeping. The bedrock of marriage is a covenant. The mistake that so many people, including Christians, make is thinking that a long and happy marriage is the result of a couple just staying in love. We willingly buy the Hollywood lie that you're supposed to spend your early adult life searching frantically for the one like it's some unicorn out there for us to take hold of. And if you miss out on the one, well, then you're just destined to wander the earth in sadness the rest of your life because your soulmate is gone. The Bible never tells us this. It never speaks about marriage or your spouse in that way at all. It never tells you to search for the mythical one. Do you know how I know that my wife is the one for me? Because we're married. Because I asked her if she would marry me, and she said yes, and we made a commitment to one another. That's how I know she is the one for me. But this, this leads to other questions. Well, why would God bless a marriage where the husband is a really bad husband sometimes? And why would God bless a marriage where a wife is far from perfect? Because marriage is not primarily about the happiness of husband and wife. I realize that that answer is sort of shocking. That answer is not what every other part of our culture is telling us marriage is about. But look at our text. Just glance through, specifically look at verse 32. I hope that verse alone makes it clear that marriage is designed to be a picture of something deeper. A picture of Christ and the church. Christ and His bride. So does that mean that the mistreatment or abuse in a marriage should be ignored? That we have to maintain this facade of perfection so that we don't blemish the picture that we're supposed to portray in our marriage? Absolutely not. Those things should not be tolerated in marriage. Husbands, your leadership in the home is not the right to control or to abuse or to neglect. It's, it's actually quite the opposite. It's the responsibility to love like Jesus in leading, protecting, and providing for your wife and for your family. And the su- submission of a wife is not coerced or cowering or manipulated. How does Christ want the church to respond to his leadership and protection and provision? Not in those ways. He wants the submission of the church to be free and willing and glad and joyful and strengthening and refreshing. Staying married is not mainly about staying in love. It's about keeping a covenant. This concept of covenant keeping is weaved all throughout Scripture. But it's most plainly seen when Jesus is described as the groom who sacrifices and sanctifies the bride. Verse 26 and 27 of our text. So let me ask this question. If, if this is weaved throughout Scripture, Jesus as, as the groom and the church as the bride, who is the person who has remained loyal in this covenant? Jesus as the groom or God's people as the bride? 
Well, I mean, it doesn't take long into biblical history to read to realize that it's not the people. It's Jesus. Old Testament Israel is not the faithful covenant keeper. Us today, we are not the faithful covenant keepers. Jesus is. So if we think that the first task in our marriages is just staying in love, we are going to be profoundly disappointed. No matter how devoted or attentive or patient a husband or a wife is, they will not perfectly behave in such a way as to always deserve the love or respect of their spouse. It will not happen. So marriage has to be based on something more concrete than just our feelings alone. Nikki and I have been married for 15 years now, and I realize that pales in comparison to a lot of you all. But I I hope that I've learned a few things over our 15 years of marriage, not just about marriage, but about my wife in particular. I don't love my wife the same way I now that I did when we were first married 15 years ago. Maybe like many of you, I don't know if you were like this, I went into marriage thinking that I was going to love her best by loving her the way that I like to be loved. I don't know if you ever thought about this before. So all the ways that I appreciate being shown love, I just did for her. And it took me longer than it should have to realize that she needs a different kind of love shown to her than what I do. That sort of behavior in a marriage rarely works very well for very long. I needed to learn about marriage and I needed to learn about my spouse. I'm still learning these things. There have been periods in our marriage where I've done this really poorly. More periods than I would like to confess. There are periods where I've done it better. What I mean is this, the way that I show love to my wife changes, but the covenant with her that I made has not. It's, it's not changed. So we could say that the first task of marriage isn't staying in love, it's keeping a covenant. And Jesus Christ is the ultimate covenant keeper. And so our marriages are a picture of that. Now countless books have been written about the topic of marriage, about they, they, some of them that even use this text from Ephesians 5. Uh, you can see at the end of your notes, I've recommended a few books on marriage that I think would be helpful if this is something that you'd like to look into deeper on your own. So there's no way that we can just condense everything that there is to know and to need to know about marriage in just a couple of weeks of sermons. So I'm not going to try to do that. We're just going to overview today and walk through things next week. But I want us to look at verse 21 for just a second. Remember what verse 21 has said, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now this is in the context of one anothering in the body. We're supposed to be filled with the Spirit, not filled with wine, not filled with sexual morality, not filled with idolatry. And Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul has set the the stage here with what he's saying and what he's explaining. He set the stage for marriage that we're talking about today and next week. He set the stage for families with parents and children. And he set the stage for the workplace by telling believers, hey, submit to one another. This is a kind of general submission that applies to all of us. All believers are called submit to one another. This is an expression or an evidence or a fruit of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. You're filled with the Spirit. You're going to be submitting to one another. You're going to be putting their preferences, them above you. Husbands and wives who are filled with the Spirit serve one another. 
They humble themselves and they get down low sometimes in order to lift their spouses up. They find ways to submit their preferences for comfort to the needs of the other. So I don't want to minimize the mutuality of submission and servanthood in marriage. Both men and women, we find in other places in Paul's writings, it's abundantly clear in how Jesus taught and who he taught to, both men and women are created equally by God and are both heirs of eternal life, heirs of the promise. Men and women are called to serve and submit to one another in practical ways. But look at verse 21. He says, submitting. This is a participle in the Greek, and it's dependent on a verb that we find back in verse 15, because this is kind of all really in the original Greek, one big long sentence. Submitting is dependent on the verb, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So follow that to its end here with me. If we want to walk in wisdom, it involves submission. These things are grammatically and theologically connected here to walking in wisdom. And Paul goes straight from this idea, hey, submit to one another, general thing, all Christians submit to one another. He goes straight from that into then like 12 verses explaining how husbands do this and how wives do this. He gives them specific individual commands to do in marriage. So submit to one another in verse 21 really I think can mean submit to one another according to the good order of authority created by God. It's not just a general submission all the time everywhere. He's saying, yes, submit to one another. Here's how you do that in a marriage. And he tells us 12 verses that he explains this. This is what this order in marriage looks like. Now, plenty of people want to just stop at verse 15 or stop at verse 21 and say, okay, submission to everybody, absolute submit, mutual submission. That's how husbands and wives should always relate to one another. And so they tear down the idea of authority in Scripture from this text. And they say, no, everything should be equal. Husband is no greater leadership or authority than the wife. But the Holy Spirit didn't stop at verse 21 in leading Paul to write this. So if we believe the whole counsel of God, we can't stop at verse 21 either. We have to continue on into the text for today and realize that God has more specific instructions for husbands and wives. And so it's right to remember that Jesus got down on the floor and washed his disciples' feet. But do you think when they saw the Son of God down on the floor with a towel you know, wrapped around his waist, putting their stinky, dirty feet in a basin of water, do you think they questioned who was really in charge? Do you think they questioned who was really the leader in that moment? I don't think they did. I think they realized what was going on because mutual submission and mutual servanthood do not cancel out the reality of leadership. Servanthood does not nullify leadership. It defines it. Jesus talked way more about what it looks like to be a servant than he does about being a leader. In fact, he says in Matthew 20, verse 26, he says, if you want to be, whoever wants to be great in the kingdom of God has to first what? Become a servant. Jesus is our model on this, 100%. But Jesus does not cease to be the Lion of Judah when he becomes the lamb-like servant of the church. He still leads, and we are still called to follow. So after instructing mutual submission in verse 21, Paul gives us then 12 verses explaining the differences in the way that a husband and a wife should serve each other. The loving headship of a husband takes his cues from Christ. 
And the willing submission of a wife takes her cues from how the church is to respond and follow Christ. These are our models. The roles of husband and wife are rooted in the distinctive roles of Christ in the church, not in what we feel like it should be or in what our culture tells us it should be. It's rooted in eternal truths found in God's word. We don't need to deny mutual submission to one another in order to affirm the importance of the unique roles of husbands and wives in marriage. But what happens when this good order that God designed is disrupted or when it's severely broken by a spouse who maybe misuses this biblical teaching or who just doesn't care? I would encourage you to realize that the solution is not just to deconstruct the union of marriage. It's not just to tear down or throw out the order of authority that God has established. Instead, I think the the solution is to recover his real purpose and his real plan for it. And that's what we want to do. So wives, when you read verse 22, and it's calling you to submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, it's directly connected with what Paul has already said in verse 15 about carefully walking in wisdom. Husbands, when you read verse 25, And it calls you to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's directly connected to what Paul has already said in verse 15 about carefully walking in wisdom. Every one of us would say, yeah, I want to walk in wisdom. In our marriages, this is what it looks like. And we can buck and fight against this. But when we choose to do that, we're fighting against the Lord himself. The husband and the wife who wants to genuinely walk in wisdom and in the will of the Lord will be making conscious efforts to live these things out respectively in their lives. If you look at verse 22 and verse 25, I want us to notice something here as we kind of wrap up for today. Both submission and love flow out of the finished work of Christ. So what the wife is being called to do and what the husband is being called to do are things that Jesus has already done for believers. Think about this with me. Jesus has submitted himself to the will of the Father, and he's loved you enough to go to the cross, to give up himself for you. He has done it willingly, and by doing so, he has set the example for us in marriage. We cannot say, that's impossible for me to do, because Jesus has already done it. Wives, if Christ is living in you, there is hope for you to submit to your husband as to the Lord because Jesus has already submitted himself to the Father for your sake. There's hope that this can actually happen. Husbands, if Christ is living in you, there is hope for you to love your wives as Christ loves the church because Jesus has already loved you that way as a part of the church. He's already done these things. So whether you're called to willingly submit to or sacrificially love your spouse, if you are in Christ, you are capable of doing it because of the spirit that is within you. Take heart. If your spouse is in Christ, they can, by the grace of God, they can fulfill their God-given role in marriage as well, by His grace, through His spirit. So here's just some questions to leave us with today, specifically for husbands and wives. Husband, are you willing to sacrificially love your wife even when she doesn't deserve it? Wife, are you willing to submit to your husband even when he doesn't deserve it? I'd venture to say that half to most of the time spent together in our marriages, the other person doesn't deserve this kind of behavior from us. 
And this is why it's a mystery, because it has to be accomplished by the Spirit of God. And that's what marriage is supposed to picture. Maybe you're not married here today, for whatever reason. I hope that you'll see the beautiful picture that is reflected when husbands and wives relate to each other in this way. There are examples of this that we can see in our church, in our community, in our families. I would pray that we would notice those moments, celebrate those moments, and build off of those things. Remember, glass half full kind of guy. In those moments where you don't offer the kind of love or submission that you should, repent. Repent. I think of the, the, the parable of the two men. One, he's forgiven this huge debt and he goes and he tries to hold his friend accountable for a tiny debt, has him thrown in prison. And the, the one who forgave the big debt hears about it and calls him back and he says, how on earth could you hold them accountable when I have forgiven you of so much? It works that way in our marriages too. If your spouse is a believer, if God is dwelling in them by his spirit, then you have every reason to forgive because you have been forgiven so much. If you're married one day in the future, so those of you who aren't married now, if you're going to be married one day in the future, I I pray and I hope that you'll be able to see and understand from God's word how your marriage should be modeled. Because all the ones you're going to see here are affected by sin. And there are glimpses and there are moments that we just talked about, but you've got to put your faith and your hope in the Lord for your marriage. There's more that we're going to say about these things next week as we walk through this text again. But I want us to know that marriage is a beautiful thing. Marriage is supposed to be a beautiful and enriching thing, but those things in themselves aren't the end of what we're wanting. We will not be married in heaven. Marriage is a temporary thing that is here on earth to model an eternal thing, as Jason said before. Marriage and our happiness in marriage is not the end all. The covenant of marriage is designed to showcase the relationship between Christ and the church. I pray that this brings us hope to know that if God set it up this way, and it hasn't changed since the beginning, because you can see Paul quotes all the way from Genesis here, if it hasn't changed all the way from the beginning, then he will be faithful to bring it about despite our stumblings, despite our falterings. In this, we must commit to not be ruled and steered by our culture, by our history, or by our feelings. We can only be steered and guided by the Word of God alone. Let's pray together. Lord, I do pray. And right now, Lord, I pray for my own heart and for my own marriage. Because I know my falterings. And God, I need a fresh view of what my responsibility is in my marriage and in my home as and lord i would rather i'd rather be passive and let things slide and get into bad habits than to buckle down and do the hard work of leading well and you know that that's my heart lord you know that that's many hearts in this room but lord i don't want it to stay that way i don't want my kids to see poor examples of husband and a father Lord, I want to cling to your word and to say, no matter who else is doing it this way, even if no one else is doing it this way, I'm going to do it your way, Lord. That's what I want to practice. And so if my brothers and sisters here who are married today have the same attitude, Lord, recognizing their faults, but also desiring a deeper walk, a more wise walk, a more committed walk, 
with you and with our spouses. Lord, I pray that this would be our heart attitude and that you would grant it. Lord, we know that you are not giving up on our marriages because you have not abandoned your church. You have not given up on your bride. And so we have a hope, no matter how dark things seem to be in the moment, we have hope that there is light of restoration and reconciliation and peace. And Lord, I pray that you would start that work in husbands and wives here today. By your grace, Lord, for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen.